1582 great hours so far and I've been looking forward to this one in this hour are our courts and the Supreme Court in particular merely politically partisan or are they now wholly illegitimate it's a question worth wrestling with and we're going to interrogate it for the hour now that Mark Tushnet Harvard Law Professor Emeritus joins us for a conversation about the legitimacy of our courts Professor Tushnet good to have you on sir how are you Okay, um, thanks for having me on. I look forward to the discussion. I look forward to it as well, sir. Good to have you. Thank you for the time, and uh, glad we got an hour to unpack it. A lot to get to here. Um, let me let me let me start broad, and we, we can we can narrow our way as we as we move through the hour. Give me some sense of what uh, has had you wrestling with this question about the legitimacy of our court system. The main thing is that uh, historically, there's always been some degree of correspondence between where the court is on constitutional issues and where the people of the country are. Um, typically, they're pretty much in close alignment with some uh, gaps. What's most dramatic uh, these days is that there's a large gap between where the court is uh, and where the people are. Mm -hmm. There's a recent study rattling around that shows that um, the court is much more conservative today than the people of the United States are, uh, and that that gap has grown uh, in recent years. Mm. Uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here. You'll take my point, Professor Tishnet. But if right is right, and I understand that that's debatable these days, but what right is. But if right is right and wrong is wrong, uh, why does the court have to be in alignment with the people necessarily? The basic reason, I think, is that the sort of fundamental stability of the constitutional system on the whole uh, requires because we're a democratic uh, constitutional system, mm -hmm. that overall the people in the long run get to decide how to govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, in the end, we can't say permanently that we're bound by decisions made 100, 200 years ago. We do have to be able to govern ourselves today. Uh, now, we have to take into account things like the rights that were stated earlier and so on, but those rights are subject to interpretation, and if the court starts interpreting them in a way that gets, um, that impedes our ability to govern ourselves too severely, uh, the system, democratic system, will become unstable. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm only pushing you here because I, 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 I love playing devil's advocate on, on certain questions, although you and I are fundamentally in agreement, I'm, I'm sure, on most everything you're going to say in this hour. But I'm, I'm still struck by this point that, there's, uh, that you've laid out, which is true, that there's a large gap between where the courts are these days and where the people are. That was not the case. I happen to be, as you well know, an African-American. Uh, and where my people are concerned, that was not the case uh, many, many decades ago. Uh, the American people were, in fact, uh, on the same page as their court system, and both the people and the courts were wrong, were they not? Uh, yes, um, uh, that's clearly right. Uh, uh, and and the, so for me, the, the question is, how did that situation um, get 
partially rectified, I guess mm-hmm. is the way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer is that there were changes in the political system, including expand, you know, um, the migration of African-Americans to the North, expansion mm-hmm. of uh, African-American voting power, the civil rights movement, all of which pushed the people of the country in a more in the direction of more racial justice. And once the people were pushed in that direction, the political system followed. Uh, and then when that happened, justice were, justices were appointed to the court who were more sympathetic to the claims of African Americans. And the gap, although it didn't disappear, or rather the, in, the inequity, although it didn't disappear, uh, was reduced. Yeah. Let me ask another uh, big and broad question. As I said, we'll, we'll, we'll get more specific as we move through this hour. Um, the courts in the minds of many have always been bad. They've always been bad. I mean, they've done the right thing here and there. As my big mama right. like to say, a broken clock is, is right twice a day. <laughs> so the courts have always been bad, even though at times they've gotten things right. But now your argument is that they're fundamentally illegitimate. We're moving beyond, you are moving beyond just this notion that they're merely politically partisan. Your point is that they're now fundamentally illegitimate. Let me ask this question. Um, What's your greatest fear about a democracy like this? And I say all the time, the audience knows that I don't think as yet America is a democracy. At best, my view is that we are an experiment in democracy. There's a Madisonian framework we can operate inside of. But at the moment, we're still at best, to my view, uh, an experiment in democracy. That said, Mm -hmm. um, what's your greatest fear about a democracy that has a court system that is fundamentally illegitimate? Uh, well, I suppose to adopt your terms, uh, the uh, the fear is that the experiment will end. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, uh, we won't continue to try different ways of improving uh, the democratic system. We'll just, in some important way, shut it down. Mm. Either either by uh, the courts m- making it impossible to. Uh, move forward with, again, further experiments and uh, incremental improvements. Or, you know, as we've seen, uh, the provocation of um, a kind of violent civil disorder that uh, other nations have experienced when their democracies break down. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about, uh, and I'm uh, glad to have you on this hour, uh, Mark Tishnet. Uh, the the William Nelson Cromwell, professor of law emeritus at Harvard Law School. Uh, We're going to spend this hour talking about um, his point of view, uh, which is why, uh, his point of view, which is rather that our courts are not just partisan, but they are now uh, illegitimate. That's a strong indictment, Um, no less an indictment coming from a Harvard law professor, (laughs) that our our court system is now in many ways uh, completely and totally illegitimate. I'm going to allow him uh, the brilliant professor that he has been for years at Harvard, to make the case, to walk through point by point his argument for why he sees our court system these days as illegitimate. Again, just getting started, but I'm excited about this hour. Hope you are as well with Mark Tushnet. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where everybody is somebody and nobody is a stranger. You belong here. I'm Tavis Smiley. He is Mark Tushnet, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, at the Harvard Law School, talking in this hour about our court system. Everybody knows, I keep saying this, everybody knows that the court system, certainly the Supreme Court these days, is 
is um, uh, overly, uh, overly, and uh, I might add even overtly, both of those, overly and overtly uh, partisan uh, in its decision-making. Um, I don't think there's much debate about that. Uh, the question is whether or not they're not just partisan, but whether or not they're illegitimate. Uh, that raises a whole nother conversation, a whole nother set of issues that have to be wrestled with, it seems to me, uh, regarding the future, um, the fragility uh, of this democracy, if that's where we're headed. And so uh, why not bring in an expert uh, like uh, Mark Tushnet to sort of wrestle with some of these questions uh, in real time? Uh, Professor Tushnet, let me let, let me start with this. Um, um, are, are there examples that you can point to um, that have raised your ire about the legitimacy of our court system? If so, can you spend some time and unpack two or three of those for me? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, most of them are, are obvious. Uh, so uh, last year's decision in uh, the Dobbs case overturning Roe and Wade mm-hmm. uh, was, in some important sense, um, destabilizing uh, because uh, for 50 years, uh, people in the country had uh, come to live with the proposition, sometimes, of course, disagreeing with it, mm-hmm. that uh, women had a right to choose with respect to uh, um, you know, their bodily autonomy in connection with, with uh, pregnancy. Um, and not, you can argue about whether the decision was, in some sense, I don't know, correct in terms of constitution-making or constitutional interpretation, um, I happen to think it was more correct than other people do, uh, but it certainly was out of line with where the people of the country are, as was demonstrated in the elections last year. Um, so that's a certain kind of uh, un- undermining of the court's what scholars call sociological legitimacy, the belief among the people mm-hmm. that what the court's doing is correct. Um, then there are a whole slew of decisions uh, interfering with legislative efforts to improve uh, improve democracy um, through, most notably, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, which the Supreme Court has effectively uh, gutted in one of its most important provisions and is an, on the way to gutting the only remaining uh, provision that has any effect at all, um, and and again, you know, you refer to an experiment in democracy. Well, uh, the Voting Rights Act was an experiment aimed at improving uh, democratic uh, um, decision making, mm-hmm. and by all accounts, it did. Uh, and yet, the court says no. You have to go back to the way things were before. Um, uh, there, there are others. So, the, uh, a sort of striking example is uh, the Dobbs case was decided uh, on one day, the day before, and and it said, "Well, look, this is the kind of decision that should be left to the democratic choice of uh, the people of of the states." Mm-hmm. And that I, you know, I'm I'm sort of sympathetic to that position, but the day before. The court had struck down a New York gun control statute, uh, uh, which means that it wasn't leaving gun control to the democratic <laughs> choice of people of the state. Exactly. Now they had an argument. They had an argument about why they're different cases. Right. You know, but but you know, on the sort of fundamental, how do we get? Who gets to govern ourselves? 
the cases are dramatically different. Yeah. Um, before let, let, let me let me pivot for a second before I come back to this because you you you're now you're you're, uh, you're teasing me and I want I want to I want to get your take on this. Um, given your sensitivity, as you put it, um, is it your is it your opinion that we now have a Supreme Court that is steering us back toward this notion? Of states' rights. Let me be clear about this. I, I'm not a I'm not a law professor as you have been for many years, um, and I recognize, of course, there've always been you know states' rights on certain levels. I, I get that, but you get the point I'm making. I'm asking whether or not you think we now have a court that's taking us uh, in a U-turn back to this notion of states' rights uh, when states did all kinds of stuff that uh, let's just say were 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 unbecoming. Uh, so historically, in the United States. Uh, uh, the idea of states' rights was very closely associated with the defense of racism. Mm -hmm. um, there's just no question about that. Uh, as a theoretical matter, um, there are pretty good arguments for saying government decisions should be made, you know, at, as the Europeans put it, at the lowest level uh, that they can effectively be made, be made. And that's the defense of a certain kind of federalism and a certain kind of states' rights. Uh, the problem, from my point of view, is that what the court's doing is selectively uh, uh, reviving the idea of state mm -hmm. rights, states' rights. Mm -hmm. uh, so the states don't have rights with respect to gun control. Uh, but they do have res rights with respect to uh, control over uh, women's bodies. Um, and the latter is, you know, reminiscent of a certain aspect of the American system of racism. Uh, and so, now just to answer your question directly, um, I think the court, uh, the court's decisions, maybe not its motivations, but its decisions in the, do in the domain of states' rights, have been to uh, um, move in the direction of the old bad form of uh, racist states' rights. Mm -hmm. how, how, how am I to read that inconsistency um, that the court, in in some matters, um, rules in ways that, again, uh, abridge the rights of states to do certain things? In other cases, they uh, underscore, uh, applaud, uh, amen, if you will, the rights of states to do certain things. Uh, how am I to read that particular inconsistency in this particular court? Um, I think the only fair reading is that what the court's doing is uh, implementing the program of the contemporary Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's as straightforward as that. Um, that you can come up with theories about, well, they're just trying to apply the original understanding of the Constitution. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the core decision undermining the Voting Rights Act uh, uh, rests on no examination of original understanding. Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion that basically just made up a doctrine mm. that would allow southern states to uh, adopt voting restrictions that everybody knows were aimed at restricting the uh, the voting participation of African Americans. Yeah. Well, when you're the Chief Justice, you can do stuff like that, I guess, <laughs> and get away with it, obviously. Um, let me ask you, and I, I could have started our conversation here. Uh, again, I want to make sure we stay focused in this hour, and, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, though. But 
the, the primary uh, issue that we're discussing in this hour is what we make of the fact and how we process the fact, what we do about the fact that our court system is no longer just partisan, but now they're moving toward being illegitimate in a variety of ways. That's, a, again, um, a, a different conversation than what we uh, tend to have around here. We talk about the politics of the court all the time, but not about how the court is moving to make itself more and more illegitimate in the minds of uh, everyday people, fellow citizens, and what that means ultimately for our democracy. That's what we're getting at to in this hour, in case you've just tuned in with Mark Tushnet, uh, Professor Emeritus at the Harvard Law School. Um, the, the, the question I could have asked uh, to commence our conversation, I want to ask it now, and you'll understand why when we move forward, and that is how you in this conversation are defining the word illegitimate. When we say that the court is not just partisan, but now they're moving toward illegitimacy. How are you defining illegitimate in that context, Professor Tishnet? I think there are two components uh, that we have to think about. Okay. One is something I've already mentioned, uh, the, uh, the, the sense among the American people that what the court's doing is roughly in line with what it should be doing. Okay. Um, that's because it focuses on what people think. Um, it's called by legal scholars sociological legitimacy, mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty clear, as I indicated at the very beginning of the show, that the court is rapidly moving away from a situation of sociological legitimacy. People are increasingly uh, uh, unhappy with the way the court is performing its job. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the numbers are, are quite dramatic in terms of the drop in public uh, approval of the court, for example. Um, the other uh, dimension is how the court goes about doing its job. Are they thinking about the Constitution in the right kind of way? Uh, and uh, although here the argument is more complicated, uh, I think there's a, a good case to be made that the rise of this focus exclusively on history and original understanding um, isn't the right way to do things. Um, it's not the way that things were done for most of our history. Uh, for most of our history, the court paid attention to, it did pay attention to the history, but it paid attention to a lot of other things. Um, and so when the court today says, well, look, we're interfering with democracy, but that's because the Constitution, properly interpreted in this historical way, requires us, um, that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another way to think about the Constitution, which most good judges in the past used, and, and the court's illegitimate in abandoning that more sensible way of uh, thinking about the Constitution. Mm-hmm. There, I want to come back uh, quickly here to this notion of sociological legitimacy that you've raised a few times now. I'm fascinated by that phrase, that term, and by the notion itself, sociological legitimacy. Um, are there examples that you have looked at uh, around the globe uh, historically, um, countries I'm now talking about specifically, where the court got so far away from sociological legitimacy that it caused irreparable damage, and I'm, I'm using that question, that phrase broadly, because I want to give you some room to sort of, sort of uh, paint and illustrate for us. But, 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 but is there is there some example or examples that you're looking at again where a particular nation 
had a court system that moved so far away from being sociologically legitimate in the minds of, 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 of everyday voters, everyday people, uh, in, in our case, in the minds of the people who make up the demos, um, that you can pretty much predict uh, where things are headed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, uh, there aren't very many examples, but that's because uh, the U.S. is uh, has historically had a Supreme Court that has a constitutional court that's been much more powerful than courts in other nations. Mm-hmm. So, if if the U.S. Supreme Court goes wrong, just to put it in simple terms, right. it's going to have a big effect on the political system. If the Supreme Court in Germany goes wrong, um, it's not going to have such a big effect. Or in Italy, uh, it's not going to have such a big effect because the court there, they're not trivial, but they're, they don't play the same role in politics that, that our court does. Yeah. There is one pretty good historical example uh, of a court uh, uh, undermining democracy uh, in in Germany in the 1920s, uh, the courts were um, unsympathetic to the then governing coalition. Um, there was enormous inflation problem, and the courts made it worse in the way they interpreted various provisions. Uh, and by making it worse, they contributed to the the rise of both. Uh, Communist and Nazi, the Nazi parties and street disorder, and ultimately, you know, the Nazi takeover in 1934. Uh, so that's probably the best example yeah. of a, of courts making things really, really bad. And that's uh, and that's why I asked that question. Um, these conversations are not just um, oblique. Um, when, when you ask a question like the one I just posed, and the answer ultimately uh, forthcoming from Mark Tischnet, uh, professor emeritus at Harvard, lands you in Germany. And with Hitler, you take the point. Uh, it's the same way I feel about, as I've said many times, about Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, when you look at the fear uh, that people, that teachers and administrators have in that state right now, that they could be jailed for teaching from certain texts. They could be in prison for, for, for uh, delivering certain lectures. That's where this nonsense begins. But historically, we see where it ends. And that's why I asked the question. Uh, about whether or not there was a comparative example um, for where a court system lost all its sociological legitimacy. And if so, what happened? You heard the answer. I digress. I will leave it there. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, I do want to come back to this notion of power and the outsized uh, amount of power that our court does have and and, and how you balance uh, or what happens again long-term when a court that has that much power loses that much le- legitimacy uh, uh, in the demos. Uh, it's, it's, it's something I want to want to wrestle with and a few other things I want to get to in this hour as we continue our conversation about our court system, not just being partisan, but whether or not they've just become illegitimate these days. Our guest is Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Mark Tushnet, and you're listening to him right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Our conversation now with uh, uh, Harvard uh, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus, uh, Mark Tushnet, in case you've just tuned in, um, talking in this hour about our court system, uh, the Supreme Court and beyond, frankly, and whether or not our court system has moved from just being politically partisan, which we all well know, uh, into the realm of illegitimacy and what that means for our democracy in the months and years to come. Uh, uh, I'm uh, delighted to have uh, Professor Tushnet on with us 
uh, today on KBLA Talk 1580. Before news, traffic, and sports, uh, Professor Tishon, uh, you, you raised this notion of power, and I want to come back to this because um, our Supreme Court does, in fact, have the kind of power that courts in other uh, nation states uh, don't necessarily possess. Uh, it's a powerful uh, Supreme Court system that we have, a powerful court system writ large. But the Supreme Court, of course, at the apex of that. Uh, I, I, I wonder um, how concerned we ought to be and what you make of the fact that you have now um, these two things competing against each other, it seems to me. The power of the court on the one hand and the court losing sociological legitimacy on the other hand. Is there something there that you can... Uh, uh, that you can uh, unpack for me? Well, I've spent most of my uh, career uh, arguing that our court was too powerful mm-hmm. and that we, uh, and, and for the reason that has now manifested itself, that is, that a powerful court was in a position when things, you know, turned bad uh, politically to make things really bad. Uh, 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 and 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 we've now seen that happening. Um, so my uh, interest has always been trying to figure out ways to mm. move from a situation where the court is as powerful as it is now to a place where it would be less powerful, um, more. Uh, limited in what it could do to interfere with our democratic decision making, uh, while still uh, protecting fundamental rights, uh, that's a very difficult um, balance to strike. Uh, it, you know, our system uh, doesn't do a very good job at it. Yeah. Uh, the sort of most dramatic example is that uh, the U.S. is the only place in the world that combines a really powerful court uh, with uh, uh, life tenure. Uh, everywhere else uh, you get judges with term limits or right. uh, fixed retirement ages. Um, and, and in the U.S. it's just a, a prescription for uh, disaster, which has now actually, I think, happened. Yeah. Uh, we have these judges who are very young, relatively speaking, and who are going to be there for a very long time. I want to come, I want to come back to this notion of, um, I, I hear you loud and clear, and I want to go there, trust me, this notion of how powerful they are uh, combined with the fact that they serve for life uh, or until they decide they want to retire. We'll come back to that, put a pin in it just a second. I promise you on that. But I, before I do that, though, this notion that, um, that you have been advancing for many years while teaching at the Harvard Law School that our court is too powerful. The Supreme Court is, in fact, too powerful. That's that's your point of view and has been for decades now. I guess the question is, since we only have three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial, to whom do you argue, Professor Tishon, that that power should be transferred to? Uh, well, I, I wrote a book, uh, co-authored a book a couple of years ago with the title Power to the People. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in favor of figuring out ways to make the people, each of us, uh, uh, more powerful in developing the policies that govern our lives. Mostly that means enhancing legislative power, uh, expanding voting rights, uh, and things like that. Now, I have to say I'm an optimist about the American people. Uh, I think that if we're given the chance to do the right thing, on balance overall, most of the time we'll do the right thing. Uh, not always. Uh, um, and and your reference to the uh, you know experiment in democracy indicates 
that you know sometimes the experiments fail and things yeah. go bad. Uh, uh, but as I say, I'm an optimist. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I know that that's partly a product of my background, which includes being white and relatively well off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other people could reasonably think that, you know, we're not very good. We, the American people as a whole, are not very good at governing ourselves. Uh, but I have to say, I don't see any other decent option. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I take I take your point. Let me say this though: in in our in the hour prior to this, uh, had a powerful conversation with another guest, and we were talking, in fact, Professor Tishnet, about the dumbed down demos that we are part of these days. That the demos, in many respects, is dumbed down. So I'm all I'm all for power to the people. Uh, I'm all for, as Sly Stone would say, uh, everyday people having more power. I I love everyday people. I I am everyday people, so I'm all for that. I'm just trying to juxtapose power to the people with a dumbed-down demos. You talk to me about that now, now, if you can, or will. (laughs) Well, (laughs) this is is an area I think about, but it's not an area where I'm uh, an expert or a scholar in. Um, I do think that uh, we have a system of... Um, education that um, doesn't do a good job of promoting um, civic responsibility, mm-hmm. understanding by the people of, of what our rights and powers and responsibilities really are. That's right. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't, as I say, it's not my field, so uh, I don't have any good solutions uh, to suggest. But, you know, if you have people on your show who know something about yeah. this, uh, get them to talk about how we can make, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I, how we can make our civic education better. No, I take your point. I, 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 all I'm saying is, I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. Uh, my, my, my viewpoint is that um, if you've got a bunch of dummies who are run the Supreme Court, uh, with all due respect, <laughs> or a bunch of dummies in the demos, uh, who do you, who you give that power to? And my point is it's, 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 it's an open question. It's an open question. If the demos is dumbed down and the Supreme Court is dumbed down with all the power they have, uh, you know, and they're pushing a particular agenda, I, I'm, I'm all for power to the people, and maybe the answer is that I trust us more than I trust them. Maybe that's where I end up, that I trust us more than I trust them. But my point is that there, there, are, there are issues to be discussed on both sides of that equation, it seems to me, but I digress on that for the moment. Let me come back to the point you raised uh, a few moments ago uh, uh, about uh, how powerful this court is and uh, the fact that they have, along with that power, life tenure. And there is no other court system in the world um, that can boast that, the power of the court and uh, the uh, the opportunity to serve um, for life. You know, I've had these questions, these conversations rather, raised these questions in conversations many times on this program and beyond. And I'm curious to what your take on it is. Do we uh, term them out? Do we expand the size of the court? As you know, there are all ki- kinds of things floating about how to fix what's wrong with our court. What uh, does uh, Mark Tushnet say about that? Well, I, I've been an advocate for now almost a decade of expanding the size of the court. Right. Uh, I, I in January twenty, if I can get this right, January twenty seventeen, uh, just before uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated, I made a public presentation saying people on my side of the political spectrum should be thinking about expanding the court, and I've held that position mm-hmm. uh, uh, consistently. Um, uh, that's not a popular position. It is clear that there is really popular support for 
imposing term limits on the on the justices. The most common one is to say they should serve no more than eighteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm I you know if we could do that, I'm in favor of it. Uh, there are people who think you can do it by enacting a statute. I sort of think you can, but it gets very complicated. Um, and and so you know the only other way to do it is by amending the constitution. That's really difficult. Yeah. But something about, uh, as the president's commission put it, court reform mm-hmm. uh, needs to be done. Yep. When we come forward, uh, when we come forward, speaking of the court, um, earlier in his career, uh, Mark Tushnet had the honor. Uh, I call it an honor, and I'm sure he won't disagree when we come forward and get his take on it. The honor of serving as a law clerk, but not just for any justice. He clerked for the late, great Thurgood Marshall. And I want to just get his take on what it was like uh, having the opportunity, the honor of clerking for the late, great Thurgood Marshall. We'll get his answer to that and a bit more when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Always uh, fascinated by persons who've had the opportunity to clerk for certain justices uh, in this country and uh, uh, none uh, greater than uh, Thurgood Marshall in my mind. Um, so, Mark Tishner, take me back uh, a few years. <laughs> Let's go back a few years and tell me uh, now that you are a... Uh, <laughs> Harvard Law Professor Emeritus, what it was like those decades ago, um, uh, having the, the opportunity every day to sit with Thurgood Marshall. Right. So it was 50 years ago, uh, and and I always begin when people ask me this question by saying I was really too young to appreciate uh, the experience. Um, I, I was clerking for him on, I think it was his fifth year on the Supreme Court. Uh, he was... Uh, as I always put it, grumpy about what was going on. Uh, he had been appointed by Lyndon Johnson in 1967 mm-hmm. uh, and expected to be part of a liberal court going forward. And, and that, you know, in 1968, that changed uh, with, with Warren retiring and, and um, Nixon ending up appointing you know, four justices. Um, and he was not happy with that situation, it's fair to say. He would come back from the courts, uh, they call them conferences, the mm-hmm. discussions among the justices, uh, and, and sort of regularly say, well, they haven't gotten rid of the Fourth Amendment against search and seizure, unreasonable search and seizure. They haven't gotten rid of the Fourth Amendment yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, he would uh, every day uh, in the afternoon. Uh, he would come into the office where the law clerks sat. And he had this really big overstuffed chair. He'd plump himself down in it and start telling stories. Um, now he's a great storyteller, but I foolishly uh, didn't pay much attention to the stories. Um, in subsequent years, I wrote. Uh, I think three books about him, and I interviewed a lot of people, and I did pick up many of the stories that he told, uh, and I'm sure he told them uh, while I was uh, in in the office as well, but I didn't remember them directly. Uh, But these were stories about what it was like to be, uh, 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 as he would have put it, uh, a Negro Mm -hmm. in the 19, uh, as he was growing up, uh, he was born in 1908, so 
Uh, and and he grew up in in uh, Maryland, which he regarded not unreasonably as a highly segregated state at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he had these stories about uh, not being able to use a, a, a bath a restroom in the downtown stores and rushing home and you know not always successfully getting home in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most memorable story for me, I, I mean, there are tremendous stories, sure, lots of sure, stories, sure, sure. but. Uh, the most memorable story is a story about uh, um, uh, a time in 1945 when he was he barely escaped being lynched. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, defending some former some ex GIs uh, who had there'd been a, a a race riot mostly by whites against uh, African Americans in Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, but. A bunch of African Americans were charged uh, with with murder, uh, and he was defending them. Um, and and he couldn't sleep in the town where the trial was, so every night he had to drive back to I think it was Nashville, maybe Memphis. And one night uh, there was a lynch mob basically that followed him in the car. Uh, and I don't want to go into all the details, but he had a great story about uh, about how he got away and. Uh, how he uh, avoided being arrested for drunk driving. Uh, and the thing about the story is it, it sort of sounds, you know, you're talking to a Supreme Court justice, how could he really actually have been lynched? Turns out that the day after the event, he wrote a letter describing what had happened. And his story was completely accurate. He had barely escaped being lynched. Um, it would have, it was... And and I have to say, his story was very good humored. He he was you know the one of the great things about him was that he um, understood what it meant to be uh, an African American man in segregated America. He understood what it took to survive, both for him and for others. Uh, and and he maintained um, a certain degree of. Hopefulness about uh, how things uh, would uh, would turn out. I want to come back to that notion of uh, hopefulness uh, about how things uh, may turn out uh, as we wrap our conversation in a moment. But it's just uh, fascinating, and I know that story well. It's fascinating to hear um, uh, Professor Tushnet just recount hearing that story directly from Thurgood Marshall, and that was just some years ago. When you think about it, this this stuff isn't that far off, right? And it's not that far back in our past. Um, that a man who would end up becoming, uh, some years later, uh, the first African-American on the U.S. Supreme Court himself barely survived being lynched. Think about that. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions. And expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Just a couple minutes left in this uh, hour um, in conversation with uh, Mark Tishnet, Professor Emeritus at the Harvard Law School. Uh, here's the extra question, Professor Tishnet. Uh, we've discussed in this hour that we have a court uh, that is not aligned with the people, uh, a court that uh, has raised all kinds of questions about the way uh, it is doing its job. Uh, we have a court that is losing, as you put it, sociological legitimacy. Uh, and you raised this notion a moment ago of hopefulness. With all that I've just laid out, which is really all that you've laid out in this hour about the concerns you have that our court system, certainly the Supreme Court, has moved away from just being partisan to being illegitimate. How then do we, how do you sustain your hope? 
Uh, <laughs> well, uh, by, uh, I think, sort of going out and about and seeing how ordinary people living their lives in an ordinary kind of way actually, um, you know, behave decently to one another. Uh, it's only when we get, you get involved in these heated political fights that people seem to turn, uh, uh, turn bad. Uh, and if we could keep, uh, uh, keep our, you know, neighborliness, uh, together, you know, in hand, yes. uh, uh, when we moved into politics, uh, you know, you know, people go to, go to churches and help each other out in all sorts of kinds of ways, uh, when their neighbors are in trouble. If we yeah. could keep that attitude when we go into politics, that would be great. Um, and it's the fact that we do have that attitude when mm-hmm. we're, we're actually just living our lives. We're basically decent to one another. That's, most hopeful. So Mark Tishnet uh, is a professor emeritus now at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, I've immensely enjoyed this conversation, Professor Tishnet. Thanks for your time and your insights, sir. All the best to you. Uh, thanks for having me. My great honor to have you on. Before I say goodbye and uh, reload to do this again tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Pacific time, two things. Don't forget tomorrow, the trial of Mark Woody Thomas uh, commences. Uh, in a downtown courtroom and every day starting tomorrow at 435 exclusively on this station only on this station can you hear every day a daily download of what happened today in the Mark Ridley Thomas case uh, on Ariva Martin in real time with Ariva Martin and our new justice correspondent attorney Dion Raymond so every day at 435 starting tomorrow when that case begins tune into KBLA for your daily download on the case of Mark Ridley Thomas finally don't forget on all of our socials on YouTube and beyond the return we just posted um, some video if you heard the play on radio last Tuesday now you can actually go online and see some behind the scenes footage of that conversation as it took place live on the air now time for the KBLA midday money chain up next the millionaires roundtable with Lynn Richardson followed by Ahead of the crypto curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money, don't matter. Either way, we got you covered here on KBLA. Until tomorrow morning, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.